every summer when I was in high school. A few friends and I took a trip deep into the Rocky Mountains. We explored caves, and that's a lot of fun, but that's not all we did. We also built fires and climbed rocks and explored the woods, gazed at stars, all the, all the normal stuff. I have a lot of fun memories from those trips, but one stands out especially. The trip was led by a guy named Don, and one day, unexpectedly, Don stood up and said, I'm going on a hike. Anybody who's interested can come with me. And then he grabbed his walking staff and made his way into the woods on a well-worn path. I went with him, along with two others, not because I particularly wanted to, but because I was afraid he wouldn't have any takers and I didn't want to be rude. If you've never been on a hike in the Rockies, you probably think it's a lot more glamorous than it actually is. Because honestly, 90% of the time, it's just hard work and trees in various states of growth. The air is thinner there, so walking uphill is truly taxing. And while you're walking, you have a decision either to look at the rear end of the guy in front of you or to look around. And once you've seen three trees, you've seen every tree. Animals typically stay away from hiking paths and other than the occasional decaying log, the scenery isn't too much to capture your attention. So after about 20 minutes, I was tired and I was bored. So I'm thinking this has been a nice little jaunt. When shall we return? But Don kept going, no joke, for miles. And there are so many forks and turns in this trail that It's not really an option to turn back unless you have a map and a good head on your shoulders, both of which I was lacking. So I followed Don with my buddies deep into the mountain forest, exhausted and regretting every minute of it. Until, in a moment, everything changed. Without warning, the tree line broke. The sky opened up, and we reached the crest. I honestly don't have words to express the beauty that unfolded before our eyes. We crossed the summit of the mountain, and on just the other side was this massive green valley, miles and miles of unadulterated, vibrant life. And that valley, that valley folded into a vast forest of dark green pine which climbed the heights of another lesser mountain, Miles and miles away, we could have seen the whole world from that summit if the air were clear and our eyes were strong. We could see what felt like hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles of unadulterated life, dark green forests, vibrant valleys, ice-cold lakes. One of the few moments in my life that beauty has taken my breath away. I forgave all the drudgery of that hike for the beauty of that moment. It takes sometimes hours upon hours of drudgery to reach the summit, but from the summit you can see for miles and miles. The Scripture works this way, I think. Sometimes you work for hours and weeks 
and months and years through stories which seem at the time relatively unimportant, relatively meaningless. But there are summits in the Scriptures. All of a sudden, peaks emerge from which you can, with crystal clarity, understand all that has passed and all that will come to be. And every step through the forest was worth it for the beauty of that summit. Today we're going to read a summit passage, perhaps one of the most important summit passages in the Bible. And from this peak we will see with crystal clarity everything that God has been doing to rescue His people and everything that God will do. I think that's really all the introduction we need. So turn with me to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to start by reading the whole thing together. If you've got a pew Bible, it's on page 259. Hold your Bible up when you're there. Awesome. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people up from Egypt to Israel, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judge over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out from before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself and your people Israel to be, a, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God. Over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's pray. There are no words that I can muster, Father, to communicate the splendor, the glory, the hope carried by the words we've just read. Open our eyes, soften our hearts, teach us. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now I want to ask and answer a handful of questions about this passage. But before we do so, I want to demonstrate to you that this passage, this promise, is the climax of David's story. All of the work we've done in Samuel for years has been building up to this point. And you're supposed to read it that way. It's what the author means for you to do. This promise is the summit of David's life. From this peak, we can look back to understand all that God has done and why He's done it. And from it, we can look forward to everything that God is going to do to rescue His people. And the author intends for you to see that and to recognize it and to treat it accordingly. So first off, we're going to prove that this passage was meant to be read as the summit. We're going to prove that we're supposed to read this promise as the lens by which we understand the story of David. So, 
I want to take, uh, take a look at the words of God once again. Look at verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Now remember that these words are a response to David's intention to build God a house. And if you think about these words against that backdrop, God's response is kind of funny. You're going to build me a house? You are going to build me a house. David, you were a shepherd boy when I found you. And I took you from the pasture, from following sheep around in the fields, and I made you a prince over the kingdom of Israel, over my people. The irony is actually made more explicit later when God basically says, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. Right? But that irony isn't exactly what I want you to focus on here. I want you to notice that God begins this extraordinary promise to David by basically quickly retelling his story from the beginning. He starts with David as we first found David in the fields following sheep. And so this promise sort of follows the narrative shape of the whole book of Samuel. The shape of this promise is the shape of David's story. And this is actually even more visible in David's response. Listen to his words in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet it was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. David begins his prayer by saying, Who am I that you have brought me thus far? You have brought me thus far. How far? What is David referring to? He's talking about what God was talking about. He's talking about how God took a shepherd boy and made him into a king. He's talking about all of the stories that we've been reading for the last two years. And when David reflects on these stories, you're supposed to reflect on these stories too. When God says, hey, remember when you were a shepherd boy? You're supposed to remember when David is a shepherd boy. And when God says, I delivered you from all your enemies, you're supposed to recall all the stories of God's faithfulness. David's doing it too. And the answer to this question, why, who is David that God has brought him thus far? What what is David's house that God has brought him thus far? The answer is, David is no one. David is a nobody. That's the point of that question. The work of God to choose a shepherd boy who will one day lead the people of Israel, whose house will be established forever, whose son will reign on a forever throne over a forever people in a kingdom of peace that never ends. That work is a work of God alone. God is the actor here. And when David asks that question, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David asks this question because he already knows the answer. He knows that he's done nothing, absolutely nothing, to earn the promotion he's been given. He looks back on every episode of his life and he recognizes that all of this 
is the work of God. Building toward, not merely His throne, but building toward a forever throne. But I want, I want you to focus on the next sentence. David says, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. Think about those words for a moment. Because they teach you something very important. David and God both together look back on every episode of David's life. On David's rise from shepherd to king. And David summarizes that series of miraculous words. We're talking about, we're talking about shepherd to giant slayer. To leader of armies. To leader of peoples. Right? All of that miraculous. And David summarizes that miraculous work with these words, it was a small thing in your eyes. What does he mean? Read the next sentence. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. What do those words mean? It was a small thing in your eyes? Look, David sees that God is doing something unimaginably bigger. Something incredibly more important than granting a small kingdom to an insignificant family. David sees that the work of God to establish his throne is just the beginning of a worldwide work. That's what this is instruction for mankind. It's a worldwide work to rescue the people of God from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. To work to set them in a kingdom of peace forever. And when he realizes that his ascension to the throne of Israel is just the beginning of a work which will become the centerpiece of all human history, he admits that everything that's happened to him personally is relatively insignificant compared to all of God's promise to save his people by the coming son of David. The dialogue between David and God demands that you read this passage as the summit, right? God and David both suggest that all, all that precedes this moment was building towards this point. And from this point, we can see all that God is about to do. Now, if this is the case, if this promise is the summit of the story of David, without which we cannot fully grasp all that God has done and all that God is doing, then nothing is more important at this point in the reading of the book of Samuel than for us to understand the nature of this promise. What does this promise mean? That's the question that we must answer. If we can get a handle on what this promise means, then we will rightly understand everything that's happened in the life of David, and we will rightly understand everything that will happen in the life of David. So let's look closer at the promise of God. First, God promises that David's name will become legendary. Listen to God's words. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I don't think this requires a lot of explanation. David's name will join the short list of legendary characters whose stories are whispered throughout the world, wherever the people of God reside, right? Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, Moses, David. 
Everyone knows these names, where the Bible is opened, where the gospel is told. God's first promise is that David's name will be remembered forever. Second, God promises to make a resting place for his people, a place of peace, free of violence and war and enemies. Listen to these words. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the times that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. This second promise of God isn't hyperbole. It isn't a vague generalization. He doesn't say less war. He doesn't say fewer enemies. This promise is this promise is explicit and it's direct. God will create a place for his people where they will be disturbed no more. There will be no more war there. There will be no more enemies and they shall have rest. Third, and this is the final promise, God promises that David's son will reign over God's people forever. Listen to this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the greatest of God's promises to David. I'm not guessing when I say that. It is the bulk of God's promise textually, making up the majority of God's words. But also David's response to this promise briefly addresses the first and the second. But all of David's words hinge around God's promise to establish a house. This passage begins and ends with a mention of a house. And the center of the passage revolves around the house of David. The house of David, which culminates in the son of David, is the centerpiece of this extraordinary promise. God's promise to establish the house of David. One might also say God's promise to establish the dynasty of David, except the dynasties presuppose the life and the death of sons. Yet this promise builds and builds until a single son of David is mentioned. And his kingdom will never end. And if you look closely, the son of David seems to be the means by which the other two promises are accomplished. It is the established kingdom of the son of David that becomes the resting place of the people of God. The promised resting place for God's people free of violence and war And enemies, this is the kingdom of David's son. And if God establishes the kingdom of David's son so that it lasts forever and ever, 
Perhaps David's great name will be passed from generation to generation because he is the father of the king of Israel. So, if this is true, if this promise is the summit of David's story, the tool by which we understand all that has happened and all that will happen, and if this promise culminates in the prophecy of a coming son of David by whose whose kingdom will never end, and by whom God will give rest to His people, then there is only one remaining question to ask. Who is the son of David? Now look, I can see you rolling your eyes. I know you know the answer to this question. However, it's an honest question. And you should take it seriously, because in one sense, the most obvious answer to this question is Solomon. Take a look at verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So here we have a very real admission that David's heir would sin before God, but that God wouldn't respond to that sin in the same way he responded to Saul's sin. In other words, God is telling David that his promise to establish his house, to establish his kingdom, and to rescue and restore his people wouldn't fall apart as soon as David's heir departs from the covenant. God says, my steadfast love will not depart from him even though he commits iniquity, even though he'll be punished for violating the covenant, this promise still stands. So in one sense, this promise refers to David's immediate heir. In one sense, these promises look forward to the reign of Solomon, the wealthiest, most peaceful, most glorious moment in the kingdom of Israel just before it shatters to pieces. But I want to prove to you from the text of Samuel and then from all sorts of other passages throughout the Old Testament that this promise could not have terminated on Solomon. I want to prove to you that not even the author of Samuel wanted you to believe that Solomon was the final son of David. To do that, let's very quickly review the three major components of the promise itself. First, David's name would become legendary. Second, God would make a resting place for His people, a place place free of violence and war and enemies. And then third, that the Son of David would reign over the people of God forever. So I want to prove to you that the author of Samuel never intends for you to read Solomon as the culmination of these promises. And we can do that by looking at one passage. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 12. Notice that we're only a few pages away from all of these brilliant promises. From all of these unconditional promises about a coming heir whose kingdom would last forever, who would usher in a forever peace without war or violence or enemy. And then, David happens to catch a glimpse of Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. And then, He calls her and he takes her 
And then he sends Uriah, her husband, to die. And this is God's response to David's awful sin. Pick it up in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Hang on. Didn't didn't God just promise that the son of David would bring peace? That in the son of David's house there would be no war? No enemies? No violence? How can both happen at the same time? If Solomon is the son of David, they can't. And you're supposed to read these words, and you're supposed to see that, and you're supposed to begin to search for a better son of David. Even We're only three chapters away from this promise, and you're already geared up. You're, you're already pushed by the author to start thinking about a better son of David. Because if Solomon is the culmination of all God's promises, then everything starts to break down. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. First Kings 11, verse 9. Read with me. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and, I have, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant." Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Solomon enjoyed... For a moment, glimpses of peace and glimpses of safety. And these were but a shadow. But he turned away from the Lord his God and he lost the kingdom. Let me be clear. Solomon's kingdom falls apart. But didn't God just promise that the kingdom of David's son would never end? Didn't God just promise a resting place for His people without war or violence or enemy? How can both things happen at the same time? If Solomon is the son of David, they can't. And you're supposed to read that and you're supposed to see it and you're supposed to start looking for a better son of David. Not explicit enough? Turn with me to Jeremiah 23. 
Spoilers, guys, the kingdom of Israel is split and thus begins the slow motion disaster that is the destruction of the physical kingdom of Israel. The last story in the history of God's broken people is a vignette of the daily life of the last of David's royal sons. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, is a prisoner. Until one day a foreign king rises and sets him free and gives him, I'm not kidding, an allowance and lets him eat dinner at his table. Oh, how the mighty house of David has fallen. And yet, there's hope. Read with me from Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in his land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Amen. Amen. Amen that. I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and my people shall be saved and live in safety. And what is that king's name? The Lord is our righteousness. Look, if Solomon or any of the royal sons of David in the ancient kingdom of Judah, if any of these sons were the son of David upon whom this prophecy culminates, then the unconditional promises of God fall apart. And you're supposed to see that. And you're supposed to recognize it. And you're supposed to begin searching for a better son of David. I see you guys. I can tell that you're not 100% convinced. I can tell that you still need a little bit of a push to believe that the authors of the Old Testament meant for you to look forward to a coming king. Many people say that that is not true. Many people say that that is not true. That the Old Testament has nothing to say about Jesus, but that's a lie. I'm going to prove it. Turn to 1 Corinthians or 1 Chronicles 17. The order of the Hebrew scriptures is different than the order we preserved in our Bibles. And that's a shame, I think, because the order of the Hebrew Scriptures explicitly demands that you set your hope in a better king, a king like David, but better than David, a son of David like Solomon, but better than Solomon. Here's what I mean. The the Hebrew Bible begins like ours, and from page one you read the entire history of God's people from Adam to the collapse of Judah. Uninterrupted. From, from, From... Garden to Exodus to exile, right? Our order is very similar to that point, except in our order, as soon as you finish Kings, you turn the page and then there's Chronicles. And Chronicles retells the story of the kingdom of Israel. So in a lot of ways, according to our order, the book of Chronicles seems redundant. I mean, I, I just read this, right? Let me skip, skip a bit. only have so much time. Chronicles is the very last book in the Hebrew Bible. You read through all of the history of God's people from garden to exile to, 
or from garden to, to exodus to exile. And then there's a shift. After all the hope you've set in David's kingdom is vanquished, as soon as you believe without a doubt that the ancient kingdom of Israel was a, was a failure, you turn the page and begin to read the prophets. And the poetic writings of the pr- prophets of God are punctuated with whispers of a better king, a promised heir of David who will fulfill the promise of God and who will restore the people of God in a forever kingdom. And if you keep reading, just at the very end, we encounter a retelling of the story of Israel's kings as shadows of the one who will come. Right? Read with me 1 Chronicles 17. Let's start at verse 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them and they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the times that I appointed judgments over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Sound familiar? Speaking of wasting time, we just reread the same thing twice, right? Right? But there's one major, groundbreaking, earth shattering difference. What's missing? What's missing from this promise? I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Listen. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him. Whoa. Hang on. What's missing? When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod of iron. And that, friends, is why paying attention matters. Because the author of Chronicles, by leaving out those few words, just whispered to every hopeful reader that the promised son of David would be a son of God without sin. And he would bring peace to the people of God. And his kingdom would be established forever. And that means that Solomon didn't fulfill the promise. And that means that Solomon's son and grandson and great-grandson and great-great-great-grandson didn't fulfill the promise. No. The promised son of David is coming. And when he comes, he'll bring with him a kingdom of peace for God's people. And when he comes, we'll have rest under righteous rule with no more war or violence or enemy. We will feast in Zion. 
That day hasn't happened yet. But it's coming. Now, listen to me very carefully for a moment. If that's true, then this promise demands a response. If this is true, if this promise, which is the summit of the life of David, which culminates in lavish descriptions of a kingdom of peace without suffering or violence under the rule of the righteous heir of David's throne, if this promise is true and it doesn't refer to some obscure and ancient dead king in Israel, then these promises mean at least as much to you as they meant to David. When you open this book, when you open this book, you're reading the words of God to you. He's talking to you in that moment. As we read these words together, we were were literally encountering God's very words to me and to you. And when we read together a promise that God will send a son of David, to rescue his people and to place them in a forever kingdom without war or violence or enemies under the righteous reign of the Son of God. You must know that these promises are to you because you know the rest of the story. You know that God indeed indeed did send his Son and you know that Jesus bore the wrath of God so that the people of God could enjoy His mercy and grace forever and ever. And you know that Jesus is returning someday. Maybe today. And you know that on that day, He'll bring Jerusalem with Him and His people will enjoy a kingdom of peace forever and ever. God is here speaking to you, giving you lavish promises of a breathtaking kingdom under the righteous reign over a spotless king. And that demands a response. So how do we respond to the breathtaking promises of God? David will teach us. What what does David do? Watch it. Watch what David does. Listen to what David says. As soon as he hears these promises, he rushes to the altar of God and he speaks these words. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Because of your promise and according to your heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever. How do you respond when an unimaginably gracious God leans over to whisper promises of hope and rest and peace to you? How do you respond when you've done nothing to earn the favor of God and yet He gives unconditional promises of rescue and hope because of the work of a righteous son of David? How do you respond when your situation shifts in a moment from darkness to marvelous light? You worship. 
Who am I, O Lord, that you have brought me thus far? You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. Your name will be magnified forever. Worship right now with all the fervor of King David because these lavish promises of a kingdom of peace and a righteous son are meant for your ears. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.